This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, Jane Brown. Libby is looking forward to being back on Monday. Okay, let's get the phones ringing. What do you think? Should mask mandates be brought back for this winter? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. There is a lot of talk around this right now, what with not just COVID, but the flu and RSV all circulating. ER wait times in Ontario are at record highs, and in Ottawa, a second intensive care unit has been opened at the Children's Hospital there because of so many critically ill babies and young children. It is a whole different scene than last winter when we were all still masking in all indoor settings. And now, it's time to tune into the town. Let's see what our municipal experts, the Tune Into the Town panel, thinks about this issue as we get the conversation going. Lauren O'Neill is Senior News Editor at BlogTO. Karen Stintz is the CEO at Variety Village. And David Crombie is a former mayor of Toronto. Hi to you all. Hello. Hi, Jane. David, I'll begin with you. Uh, mask mandates or personal responsibility when it comes to wearing a mask? What are your thoughts? Do we have uh, David on the line? Okay, David. Actually, I'll go to Karen while you guys get okay. that sorted out. Karen, what do you think? Well, I actually wouldn't frame it that way. Okay. I, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, it, it, it's it's the complications of actually implementing a policy because again, last year there was a lot of places that were closed, right? So we didn't have restaurants open. We didn't have movie theaters open. We didn't have um, sporting events open. And so, you know, it was easy to say put masks on in school in the grocery store. Um, now we have all these areas are open and it's not easy to say to people, put a mask on when you walk into a restaurant and then take it off when you sit at the table. It's not easy to say to people going to the Maple Leafs, uh, games like, yeah, keep your masks on unless you're eating. And for kids in school, you know, what they found in Hong Kong when they tried to do this is the masks actually didn't prevent the other kind of viruses that we're talking about because those viruses are not primarily transmitted through or only transmitted through airborne, but also be on uh, doorknobs and, and all kinds of other things that kids touch. And the reality is they go home and play with their friends and they take their masks off. So I don't think it's as straightforward as wear a mask in crowded places because if you say, well, just wear a mask in a grocery store, that's not actually where the most of the, 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 the viruses are being transmitted. So when you start to tease it out and break it down, it becomes extremely hard to say when and where you should wear a mask. Uh, but Karen, there were there were times over last winter, and I, you know, I remember it was quite varied. But there were times when people had to walk into a restaurant, wear a mask, and then they could take the mask off if they were sipping on their drink or eating. So it was mandated in those situations. It's just um, I I don't know that there is an enthusiasm on any level by the public health people to go back to those kind of strict restrictions. Karen? To me, no, I don't think there is. You don't think there is, no. No. Uh, What what about you, Lauren? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm seeing no urgency in terms of bringing mask mandates back. Uh, Public health officials and government officials seem very reticent to kind of put that mandate in place again. Um, I think it's important to note, like Karen said, a lot of the viruses going around are not spread the same way that COVID is. So uh, while it's important to have masks on to prevent the transmission of COVID, I think there should also be a lot of emphasis still placed on washing hands and kind of staying staying home when you're sick. So I think sometimes when we just put masks, mask mandates, mask mandates, everyone thinks that, you know, okay, we're good. I'm safe. I have a mask on. Whereas there are other things we should be doing as well. So I don't know if they're ever going to mandate it again. But I mean, individual businesses can certainly 
say, you know, unless you have a, a you know, another health condition, um, please re request that you wear a mask. And I think that every person has the right to wear a mask. And like, I know I wear a mask when I'm on public transit, certainly. Right. Um, and so I, I just don't know based on all the backlash last year and everything that happened in Ottawa, if uh, how eager any government officials are to put mandates in place again. But I do think there should be a strong public health message that, you know, mask when necessary and wash your hands, wash your hands all the time, like the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. And use wipes to wipe down surfaces and all of that, even though I know there there was the emphasis was taken off that, that you could pick it up off of a desk put it near, you know, and put your hand near your nose or your mouth and get COVID. But at the same time, experts have also said to us that, yes, if if there is a live virus and you end up touching it and putting it on your nose or your mouth, uh, that it could be transferred. So you're right. Hand washing is something that maybe we've take we haven't talked about that as much in recent weeks and months. Well, especially because it's not only COVID that that is uh, ticking up numbers in hospitals, right? There are lots of different colds and flus, and some of those can be spread by surface contact. So yeah, I definitely am a strong believer in the hand washing um, for all types of viruses. Yeah. Uh, is David Crombie with us now? I, uh, can you hear me now? Yes, I certainly can. It's always uh, nice I, to hear your I voice. I apologize. I'm not sure what happened. And, and I, didn't, I didn't hear everything that was said, but it seems to me that they've been warning us for some time now that it's going to get harder in the fall and in the winter complicated of course by by uh, uh by other diseases coming at us as well the normal flu um so two things to occur to me one uh it, it it seems to me that that there should always be personal choice except if the, if the health authorities say to us they want to mandate masks then that's that's okay with me um but we don't we don't we don't have these people in place just to give us advice they only we need to make sure that we're we're protecting ourselves, but we're also protecting other people. So I don't have a lot of patience with people who think that they have a personal choice over and above a public authority when there is a, a public demand. Mm -hmm. I also have a feeling, Karen, that it's human condition that if we're not required to do something, we are probably less likely to do it. Even for those of us who were quite regimental about wearing our masks uh, for the vast majority of the pandemic so far. So I, I just think that people... You know, as a result of not masking, you know, we're seeing uh, the ER wait times go way up. We're seeing more respiratory illnesses. And that more than anything speaks to how effective masking is uh, when you look at what was happening last year and there were basically no flu cases. No, I, to be honest with you, I don't think we can make that leap, to be okay. candid. I mean, the reality is there was a lot of other things we had in place other than masks. You know, we had a lot of physical distancing. We had a lot of closures. We had a lot of limitations on gathering. And so to simply say that if we put masks on, we would stop the spread of this latest virus, I don't think we can make that leap. And if we could, then there's a strong case to say why we would put masks, why we would make a mask mandate again. But again, each of these viruses are slightly different. And the way COVID is transmitted is not the same way these other viruses are transmitted. And so that's why I wouldn't frame it as a personal choice matter. Mm -hmm. I would frame it as a, you know, is there the data to support this kind of right. um, mandate? Right. And, and to be... To be candid with you, I don't think there is, and I don't think, I think it's a false security to wear a mask and then expect you might not get some of these illnesses. Okay. You might. You mean, and right. so we're asking people to wear masks and they're still not being protected. And I'm not sure that's a good thing either. Okay. To the phones now, what do you think? Should mask mandates be brought back for the winter season, given all of these respiratory illnesses plus COVID? 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. Joe in Toronto, what are your thoughts? No, no, I don't, I don't believe we should be bringing back those masks. We have to challenge our, our, our systems so, so we can adapt. That's, that's what viruses do. You can never stomp out a virus, as Doug Ford wrongfully said. I don't remember my biology to a T, so I can't speak succinctly, but you can use layman terms and try and explain. Okay, I think we lost him there, but uh, I get the gist of it um, about the masking. And, uh, you know, 
David, over to you for just a second again. Dr. Kieran Moore, he has not been all that visible in recent weeks and months, our chief medical officer of health. Uh, He did say fairly recently that um, he may be instituting more recommendations around masking. Do you think there there is a political element to this at all behind the scenes? Yeah, there there obviously there there may well be, and there probably always is some people practicing politics with even the most important issues. But the fact of the matter is that I am not an expert, and and we hire people to be the expert. And if you're going to hire experts, you should at least listen to them. As they used to say, there's no point in hiring a dog and doing your own barking. (laughs) I've never heard that one before, but I like it. (laughs) It seems to me that if if Karen or whoever else has an authority says it's time to put your mask on, wash your hands, stay your distance, all of those things, then people should do it. Well, certainly, Lauren, I think we all feel an affinity toward Dr. Eileen DeVilla, our medical officer of health in Toronto. We listen to her day after day after day through the pandemic. We don't hear her that often. She was uh, with the Board of Health the other day. A motion was passed by members of the Board of Health to explore the idea of whether mask mandates are necessary at this time. But she seemed quite resistant that we did not need to implement a mask mandate across the board. Yeah, and that's curious to me because she is been so outspokenly outwards, wear masks, protect yourself, wash your hands um, since the beginning. And and like you said, we all love Dr. Davila. If she says that we should be wearing masks, I think a lot of people will take that to heart. And she's not recommending against masks or anything, but she doesn't seem eager to put a mandate back in place. I think that if it comes down to our ER numbers are getting so high and the government starts, uh, the pro- province starts to threaten to close businesses down again. People will be like, masks are fine. Okay, let's do it. Let's mask right. up anything to try and prevent it. So I think um, what Dr. Davila is saying, you know, do what you can to protect yourself, um, whether that includes masking. And, and I mean, I don't personally see a problem with wearing masks. I know some people maybe don't like the way it feels on their face, but I mean, it's not that much of a, a barrier. It's kind of annoying to wear in stores. But I mean, if that can, even if it has like 2% chance of protecting me from something, it's worth it. Well, and Karen, before we go back to the phones, when do you think it would be necessary to reinstitute masking? I mean, what would that scenario look like with regards to hospital ERs, ICUs, et cetera? Well, again, I, I mean, I'm of the opinion that masks may not be that effective in stopping the transmission of these other viruses. And so if they're not effective, then I don't see the point of the mandate. So we do and need more science is what you're saying. We need that's more. What, that's, yeah. that's what I would say. Yeah. And then if you can make, if you can draw a conclusion to wearing masks against this particular virus and yeah. then what's happening in the ER, well, then, yeah, you can make that case. Let's go to Tony in Mississauga. Tony, you're up next here on Fight Back. Go ahead. Another lockdown. I was in the Virgin last night with my son. Not for that, but there's a lot of kids with res- respiratory illnesses, and you know they're spreading it in schools and bringing it home to the elderly. And the other thing, but they had an opportunity with that strike where kids were at home. They didn't even need to do a lockdown, but they did it for what two days. They could have had it locked down for two, three weeks to flatten the curve, and we could have went back to normal. Hmm. They need to wear masks or anything. And sorry, I missed at the beginning. Where did you say you were last night? Oh, it's an emergency in, in Saga, like uh, a way. Okay. Yeah, a lot of kids, especially a lot of kids. Okay. Like and twelve. <laughs> and what did you what did you witness? Like a lot of coughing. What it, a lot what, of coughing? Yeah, fever kind of stuff. Coughing a lot, right? Right. And uh, and what yeah, and what it, were what were your thoughts? So, so one of your children was not well. Is that why you were there? Oh no no he had he had some. Okay. We went late. Okay. But what are your thoughts in terms of uh, what you witnessed in the ER? Did the did you think these kids needed to be in the ER, or you know, parents? Uh, yeah, I was. I felt uh, you know, my kids were these adults, young adults. But you know, having when you had young kids, you know, when even like there was one as young as ten months in there, they can't tell you what's wrong, right? But yeah. They're fevering. They're like they're not fe- feeling good. And there are some that were like actually like seven, eight year olds and. And uh, like that one, one girl, she looked like she was about eight years old and she was pretty bad, right? Yeah. And it's like, you get backed up. Yeah. So that's the thing that you have to wait, you know, quite a while. When you have, a, you know, like a more something like an infant, it's scary, right? It's, Absolutely. You can't communicate with them. 
Yeah, no, and we've all been there. Thank you for calling in, Tony. And uh, the average wait time in Ontario ERs, we just learned this last week, is around 21 hours or so. That is a long time to be sitting in ER. Uh, Kelly in Toronto, what are your thoughts? Do we need to bring back mask mandates? No. Hi, Jane. Um, No, we do not need to bring back mask mandates. We need to build up our immune systems and need to adapt to these viruses that are, you know, going to be continual. Uh, The flu season happens every year, um, you know, and it didn't happen because we were all masked up and we were all staying apart. Um, That is why now we're seeing it again. But we need to live and I do not, I'm not for mask mandates. Okay, let's go to Sita in Mississauga. Sita, you're on the air. What are your thoughts? Thank you, Jean. Um, we should have a mask mandate as long as COVID is around. We don't need to adapt. We want to get rid of COVID. And if people don't want to take the vaccine, maybe the masking will help a lot. Okay. Thank you for calling in. Okay. We'll change topics now. It's our tune into the town panel. Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of BlogTO, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto. Mayor John Tory, current mayor of Toronto, has released a copy of the letter he sent yesterday to Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland and Ontario Premier Doug Ford. In it, he thanks both levels of government for the support the City of Toronto has received so far to offset revenue losses and increased expenditures directly related to the pandemic. He also says he's reiterating a request for continued assistance from both the provincial and federal governments to address the continued impacts of COVID-19. Mayor Tory points out the 2022 operating budget was balanced on the expectation of continued COVID-19 support funding from the Government of Canada and Province of Ontario and details how much funding is required for transit shelters and loss of other revenues. David, as the former Toronto mayor in the group here, I'll ask you first, what's going on behind the scenes that this money has not yet been delivered and that Mayor Tory has issued a copy of this letter? Well, I think there's probably quite a demand on on the, on the part of both governments, federally and, and provincially, throughout the pandemic, and they're probably still even picking up on that. But I think the Mayor Tory is right to write the letter, to let them know that this is exceptional expenses, that these are exceptional expenses, and therefore he's looking for assistance. So my guess is it's, it's just a, 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 lack, a, a lagging in the system as opposed to any decision made federally or provincially. And I think the mayor is right to uh, get them on track again. Uh, Karen, as a former Toronto City Councillor and mayoral candidate, uh, how effective is it to do something like this, release a public letter? to the Premier, to the Deputy Prime Minister? Yeah, I think this is probably the first part of John Tory's campaign. You know, part of what John needs to do is is actually parse the issue down to the fact that Toronto is different from other municipalities um, because of, the, number one, because of transit. And so much of transit revenue is actually driven by ridership, and our ridership continues to be low. Mm-hmm. And that's unique uh, in the country, actually. So that's that's a key thing. Uh, the other key thing is the city has been benefiting from the housing, you know, as much as everybody moans about the increased housing costs and the price of homes and houses, the reality is it's been a windfall for the city because they have the extra transfer tax that goes directly to the city. So, you know, the city now with house prices dropping, sales uh, lower, and, um, you know, that, that drop-off, actually, that real estate activity, that's had a huge impact on the city of Toronto, and there's no way to fill that hole. None. That's, and that's not COVID-related at all. That is systemic, mm-hmm. uh, interest rate-related, and probably going to be that way for a long time. So there's some structural, big structural things in the budget that have been there, that have been masked over throughout the years, that need to be dealt with. And I, I actually think framing it as a COVID issue is not the right way to frame it. Okay, so uh, to be more straight up about what actually needs to be fixed and done and, and rebuilt Exactly. Okay. Uh, Lauren, what are your thoughts about this public letter of uh, a funding request? I think it's a great strategy, um, not only just to get the attention of you know, obviously he has the attention of higher government officials, but to let people in the city know exactly what he's asking for, how much of a shortfall we have, and why. And so if he hadn't issued this letter, I mean, I, I might not have 
you know, given this issue much thought today. Um, and, and I think it's, he makes a, an important plea saying, you know, we need this money because if we don't get it, we're going to cut back on more services. We're going to lose jobs. And, and these are things that, I mean, Toronto cannot afford to cut any more services at this point. So um, I think it definitely will get a lot of public support behind him and put a little bit more pressure, maybe visible pressure on um, the deputy prime minister and the premier to, to come forward with the funds. And David, how does this work? So this letter, this public letter, uh, a copy of which has been released to the public. Um, what what is the the next step in uh, John Tory's strategy to ensure that he gets the funding that he's more or less been promised? Well, I, I think you have to the the notion that that somehow he can get it because Toronto is different and special. I know that is a, is an argument we make, but it's not an argument that goes over well and. In, in, in Ottawa, certainly. So one of the steps that he's going to have to uh, engage in, he probably already has, is engaging the interests of other large cities because they may have similar concerns. And therefore, there's a, there's a, there's a comfort in having more than just a single question, a single request from Toronto. But if you've got it from Montreal and Vancouver and those others, so he should talk to his colleagues, the other, the other uh, large uh, uh, mayors of large cities and have them be making a request along, and therefore they can have a program of which Toronto can take advantage. Karen, how unique is Toronto in this funding request? Oh, exceptionally unique. Um, again, we we run the third or fourth largest transit system in North America and the largest in, in the country. So that alone um, puts us in a unique position. And as I said, we're unique in the world um, for having a system that's funded by Fairbox revenue. That, that's unheard of. Like we, 70% of fare box revenue comes from the rider. And so, you know, most systems, it's 30% as an example. 30% of their overall revenue comes from ridership. So when ridership drops, you're looking at a 30% deficit. When our ridership drops, we're looking at a potential 70% deficit. We can't make that up through tax, through a proper tax hike. It's just not possible. And you certainly can't do fare, raise fares to cover that. So that alone, even if you wanted to make it a unique argument just around transit and importance of transit in the green economy, then you have your argument right there. And Karen, let me ask you this as a former Toronto City Councillor. When uh, John Tory says, if we don't get this money, we will have to make deep cuts to services our residents require. What is he talking about there? I don't even know. I don't even know how he could do that. I mean, he could, you know, he could threaten to shut down certain transit routes. He could threaten to... Um, close shelters. Um, you know, it's not like we benefit from a lot of, I mean, closing libraries isn't going to close the hole. So it, it's not like Toronto is getting money hand over fist relative to other municipalities. We just have bigger expenses for housing, shelter, and transit. And uh, David, uh, based on your experience, when does this money need to come in in order to fill the gap in the 2022 operating budget? Well, they need it obviously as soon as possible, but I, I think you, you really should. Uh, be leery of assuming that somehow, because Toronto is unique, you're going to get the money. Bear in mind as well that at least abroad in, the, in Ontario and probably other parts of the country, Toronto is understood to be undertaxing. Toronto actually has a lower tax than, than other places. And you'll find that the response will be, why don't you increase taxes and keep it up at least to the, to the uh, same level as those, those cities and and uh, municipalities around you. And that will be their first response. Lauren, do you have a thought on that? I don't know when the funds need to come by. I'm no yeah. expert on that regard. But when he talks about cutting services, what I've seen so happen so far with the austerity is, you know, basic things like filling potholes, keeping up the infrastructure of the city, picking up garbage at a reasonable rate, keeping parks clean, um, I, I would hate to see this extend to, you know, services that are targeted towards seniors and vulnerable people and children. We're already seeing recreation programs are being cut. Um, so uh, I, I really hope that the money comes through if that's possible, because Toronto really can't afford to lose any more services. Lauren, you bring up um, uh, some issues that were part of the municipal election campaign in Toronto. Uh, you're a city person. You do a lot of walking. You do a lot of biking. I'm wondering if you've started to see any positive uh, movement towards rectifying some of those situations that were brought up during the election campaign. You know, 
the parks have looked a bit cleaner. I haven't seen the piles and piles of garbage around as I was before the election. So that's looking okay. Still lots of potholes and cracked sidewalks, but I know these things take time. So um, hopefully, you know, when the weather, I mean, it's going to get gross and then it'll get nice again. We'll, we'll start to see more improvements in, in the public realm. Yeah, we don't want that to go away because that's what everybody was talking about, yeah. Karen, was the emptying of the garbage bins and and making sure that facilities in the parks were working, et cetera. And already we're not hearing about that, I guess, probably because of all these strikes, go bus and the and uh, issues around the ed workers. Oh. But it's kind of faded into the background. But, but I will say we have seen some footage online of public bathrooms in parks that are absolutely disgusting, like. From last week, there was one, I think, in Dufferin Grove that was just... Don't don't Google it. It's just hideous to really? say. So um yeah, so we're still definitely not uh, up to snuff on cleaning the public park bathrooms if they're open at all. Right. Karen, you live in the city as well. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, again, I live in Young and Eglinton, so I'm just consumed by the ongoing construction, and I actually... Yes. I don't notice anything else. Yeah, I'm sure. I know my sister's family is up there as well. They never think it's going to be finished. Exactly. Exactly. Um, There is no no North Toronto. It's a construction site. It's a construction site. Exactly. It's a good thing we all have a sense of humor because it's not really all that funny. Yeah, you need one. (laughs) Um, Well, I thank you. Our tune into the town panel. Always great to hear your opinions on issues affecting our city. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Thank you. Senior News Editor of BlogTO, Lauren O'Neill, Karen Stint, CEO of Variety Village, and David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto. Jane for Libby, who will be back on Monday. And coming up in the second half hour of Fight Back, remembering our war heroes on the eve of Remembrance Day. We will be joined by two World War II veterans next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Tomorrow is a Remembrance Day, but since tomorrow is also Free for All Friday on Fight Back, we want to pay tribute to this solemn occasion by bringing you a special segment with two World War II veterans who are honoring us with their stories of fighting in the Second World War. General Richard Romer will join us later this half hour, but first, Jack Rind, Canadian World War II veteran, Royal Canadian. Canadian artillery who served in the Italian campaign. Jack, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure. Yes. Uh, you're, are you called Jane? Yes. Okay, Jane. Jane and Jack here on Fight Back. Oh, uh, what a pleasure. And for me as well. Jack, you have said that war is brutal and we need to remember how stupid and unnecessary it is. Can you expand on your thoughts? Well, yes, of course, it, yes, it, it, it war, particularly, uh, say World War Two was, was the, uh, I'm quoting the big, the biggest and deadliest war in, on history involves 300 countries and, and the greatest mass, uh, destruction you could think of. And it was, when you think of the, the hundred thousand Canadians and the, and the, the that were killed in the two wars and 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 the terrible terrible civilian casualties. I mean, and, and, and do you want me to go on about this or what? Well, if you if you'd like to, I certainly want to hear um, your personal stories yeah, well, around. You ask me my personal story. Yeah, I, mean, uh, I can tell you that war war is so crazy. We. We wrecked the country. We ruined Italy. We, the civilians suffered uh, tremendously in being killed and, and so on. And, and, and then as far as I was concerned, war is so stupid because one day I'd be killing my, uh, the enemy. I'd be killing German soldiers with my guns. The next day we'd capture some and they'd be just guys like my guys. They'd come from families at home and, it was just ridiculous. Anyway, uh, I won't go on, but well, I went. Yes, okay. So when you think you back, ask me some questions. Yeah, you, absolutely. I'll tell you what I did and what my role was and everything. You, but I don't know what you wanted. Well, Jack, why don't we start with um, 
how it all began for you, uh, your role in World War II. Oh, well, how, how, I don't know how far back you want to go, because World War I had just finished when I was at school, so we all had still... We, we still had cadet corps, and then and then uh, when I was at university, the, uh, this uh, World War Two was starting, and so we had the uh, uh, I joined what was called the COTC, the Canadian Officers Training School, uh, and 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 then uh, then I decided I should take uh, go in for artillery, and I took and then then I finally wanted to get into action and I was able to get into action took my training across Canada and uh, and then I got uh, shipped to England and uh, finally I got posted to the 11th field regiment and uh, uh, and in command of, of 9th battery with its with its four 25 pounder guns and what do you want it what I can talk more about what what my role was and so on well what was it like what was daily life like for you? how long were you over there for world war 2 oh well it depends what you mean by world how long i was over there first of all i went we i was many months in england training mm-hmm. and then we got on a ship we thought we were going to train in, in some more in Ireland, but the ship was so big we couldn't figure out. We just and then we looked up after a couple of days, and my God, that's the Straits of Gibraltar. So then we landed in Sicily and began the war in in Italy, and 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 we fought in Italy. That was before D Day. For for almost a year, we fought there, and 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 I can tell I can read from my diary. About yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, uh, I kept a diary, so so I'm reading from what I actually wrote while in action, and I I don't know how much of this you want to hear, but I can read you some things that are very real because they're being written actually while I'm in action. And uh, but first of all, what did I do? I was a gun position officer. I commanded a troop of of four twenty five pounder field guns. Uh, and I can tell you that field guns are are small cannons that are on wheels, but uh, we don't use them to necessarily destroy buildings, but to 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 land. And when our infantry is pro- progressing, we fire on the enemy, so it's easier for the infantry to progress. Anyway, that, that's and and I commanded these four. 25 pounder guns and I had to had, dig a gun w- with my head my, my head uh, team I we dug a pit and from that I uh, I, I gun positions uh, we had four gun positions blah mm-hmm. blah how much do you want of that Well let me ask you this uh Jack you're 101 years old these diary entries that you're about told to told you I was 101 uh my producer Zeev Oh his arithmetic isn't very good How old are you <laughs> 102. 102. Congratulations. Okay, let's go on. So let's. So at what? How old were you uh, when you wrote what you're about to read for us? Well, I I was uh, 20, 20, 20, 24, uh, 24. Okay. Oh well, yeah. please go ahead and and read what you wrote in your diary. All well, those I, years there's, ago. A, there's a lot, but here I, I, I here it is. I can say. Uh, I'm writing in the diary that day. It rained and snowed most of last night. I woke up to find our gun area a sea of mud and water. I couldn't conceive how we were going to make our gun position out. This is supposed to be sunny Italy, fighting in sunny Italy, and we landed there in Sicily and fought all the way up Italy for over a year uh, before D-Day. And so uh, there was sunny Italy was a terrible, it was the worst country to be attacking because down the middle were the Apennine Mountains and then off the, off these mountains on each side were rivers from the Moro, the Sango, the Rapido, the Montiono, the Fogo, all these rivers and we had to keep crossing these rivers. Do you want to hear all this? Yes, absolutely. We had to keep crossing these rivers. To, to advance forward, and of course the Germans would would blow up the bridges. So some of my diary recordings of trying to cross a river when the enemy was on the anyway, uh, 
Well, please uh, keep reading. Please keep reading because I think right. it's amazing here's, that. Uh, here's here's okay. one. Uh, yeah. uh, I, uh, I'm woken up at. Uh, I have my four guns, you see, and I, I'm the gun position officer and uh, controlling these four guns through a microphone and so on. But anyway, uh, I'm reading out of the diary. Uh, I am awoken at 00300 hours. That's just half past 12 tonight. By a peculiar crash and a yelling. Someone's hurt. It's at number two gun, sir. Man's leg off. Oh, man. What what a night for this to happen. The mud is ankle deep and the wind is lashing the rain down in stinging fury. Get to number two gun and find the voice uh putting Collins on a stretcher. So that that's just one example yeah. I can read and lots more like that. And uh, where and what do you remember being cold? Like what do you remember oh about gosh, yeah, yeah. Yes, cold, it was miserable. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and how was that? You know, were you eating? Were you able to get like hot coffee, tea? Like, well, well, we had rations that we and they brought brought stuff up for us. And yes, yes, we we managed to. You know, it wasn't. It was just very basic food. But yeah. uh, but anyway, we we managed it. the poor the poor Italians. They were struggling, and sometimes they brought us food if they had some. For us and so on. Uh, and after you, uh, you said for a year you were fighting up the middle of Italy. What happened after that, Jack? Well, we, after we got nearly up to where we were wanting to get to, uh, uh, they, uh, uh, Churchill and, and, and the commanders decided we should go over and help them in where they're now fighting in Europe. And so they put us on a boat to we landed in Marseille and drove all the way up to to join the action in Holland it, that was in February of 1945 by then <clears throat> the germans should have quit by then cuz they were losing and fighting in holland was 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 very very much easier than f- the fighting in italy the germans were on the run and so it it wasn't and and then when we the uh, the dutch people were so grateful when we were when we relieved a village which had been under the ruthless thumb for two, four years they couldn't they couldn't show their appreciation in greater form it was mm-hmm. almost embarrassing anyway wow. so uh, but casino was where i was with my foot in it, back to the Italian. I was at the foot of Monte Cassino, which was the most horrible part of the Italian campaign, because we were trying to. We the our side was trying to get to Rome, but we had to pass this Monte Cassino, which had a wonderful monastery at the uh, at the top. And stupidly, like war, we bombed and ruined this iconic monastery. Because we thought the Germans were using it, uh-huh. but they could use it when it was wrecked just as easy. And we had, I, we had our our guns at the foot of Monte Cassino for seven weeks, uh-huh. and we couldn't move around in it because every time we moved, they could see us, and so we only moved when we had to fire our guns, and then they could fire on us. So. It would, it would, oh boy, that was yeah. Jack, let me ask you this. Um, we do need to wrap up and we really appreciate you being with us today on the day before Remembrance Day. Uh, how much has being a World War II veteran meant to your life? Uh, not, not very much. No. Once, once it was over, uh, the man that had uh, uh, trained me in, in, in Canada, one it was an officer who was the, the 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 president of a life company and he hired me and and so on and I ended up as president of that life company and so on and so and I married a wonderful wonderful mm-hmm. wife and the war was something in my past that, yeah well you know, it's it's uh, it is occasionally a bl- when I make a mistake of judgment and turn the wrong way on a road or something I think God if I were if I made that mistake while I was leading my troop, it would be serious. We'd be in enemy territory, but I don't think of the war anymore. No, 
but it doesn't mean anything to me. And I mean, I it meant a huge amount in my life. Yes, it it matured me in a great way, and uh, I could go on about it, but yeah. no. Well, thank you so much for spending a part of today with us and um, recollecting your memories from that time so long ago. Jack, it was a pleasure to meet you. Well, all right. It's my pleasure. So have you got a husband? Uh, yes, I do have a husband. <laughs> all right. Any children? I do have two children. Yeah, grown children. All right. Well, thank you for asking. I see. Well, okay. Well, give your husband a message, will you? Yeah. Tell him he's lucky to have such a nice sounding charm. Oh, well, that's very nice, Jack. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we are thinking along with you as we approach Remembrance Day tomorrow. Jack Ryan, Canadian World War II veteran, Royal Canadian Artillery, who served in the Italian campaign. Quite a story. And still to come, General Richard Romer, Honorary Lieutenant General of the Canadian Armed Forces. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby will be back on Monday. We are taking time to reflect on the sacrifices of Canadian soldiers on the day before Remembrance Day. And now we go to a very special guest, Zoomer Media friend, General Richard Romer, Ontario Lieutenant General of the Canadian Armed Forces. General, hello. It's an honor to speak with you again. Nice to talk with you, and I was just listening to Jack with his great stories in Italy. He's an old friend of mine, and he's really old. What is 102? Yeah. Holy cats. I don't know that anybody gets to be that old. I'm only 98, so <laughs> you understand. You have a few years to go, sir. Of course. <laughs> now, what are you thinking about? Uh, you and I last spoke uh, on the anniversary of D-Day, uh, and we also, you reflected then on Queen Elizabeth's 70 years as well. What are you thinking about as we approach Remembrance Day 2022? Well, I'm thinking about being alive and well, and uh, in terms of the military experience I've had over the long period from the time I was 18, I walked into the recruiting office in London, Ontario. All the paperwork had been done, and I joined the Air Force on January 24th, 1942. And I'm still there as the Honorary Lieutenant General of the Canadian Armed Forces. The Honorary Lieutenant General. There's only one of me, thank goodness for that. <laughs> but I've had all kinds of experience wartime and peacetime, that has been really, for me, very fulfilling, and I'm so honored to be able to continue. So 80 years ago, you signed up, and here we are 80 years later, and you are able to tell us about your experiences as a young man. I'm sure when you were listening to Jack's stories, uh, what did you think about, um, because you had... I mean, you were a, a pilot, a fighter pilot, so your experiences were different, but uh, you were in the same situation. In the same situation, but really remarkably similar. Jack fired his small guns. He had four of them to begin with in Italy, artillery guns, small and 25-pounders. When I got into combat at the beginning of uh, Oh, at the end of 43, I flew a Mustang. And one of the things I had been trained to do by that time was to range, that is, direct the fire of artillery guns, the same kind of guns that Jack had, except mine were much bigger in terms of directing the fire. Right. There were guns that were up to... Uh, 150 and not uh, 25 and uh, actually I ranged some super heavy guns over 14 miles of uh, space and I did that a great deal during all of my tour from about 18 months in fact the last session I did was to knock down a pair of bridges a place called Venlo on the Moss River and it cut off all of the German ability to retreat.
retreat from Holland, and that had been ordered by Montgomery, the great uh, general. You don't think he was great? Call him out of heaven, he'll tell you how good he is. <laughs> In any event, I had a similar kind of experience with guns that Jack had, except that I was ranging them all over France, Belgium, Holland, and finally at the entrances of Germany. So we had something in common. And I was yeah. Air Force, single engine fighter pilot, fighter reconnaissance. I had three, three jobs. One is to range guns. The other was to photograph enemy positions with a camera that was stuck in the back of my Mustang fighter. And the third thing was simply to see what the enemy was doing. That was my job. And I did most of it in a Mustang that didn't get above 5,000 feet. Most of it was at about 1,000 feet, so I could see what was on the ground. General, you know what I... Everybody liked to shoot at me. You know what I remember from our conversation on D-Day? You were explaining um, how you were not that far off the ground, over the water, and that you were, you basically, you're gas tank was empty. And that that image has stayed with me. For those who were not listening to you on that day, can you tell us that story again? Well, the story was very simple. On D-Day, I went across from England in my Mustang fighter with alongside another fighter. He was the leader. We got over to uh, the beach area, and we had to get down low uh, because there was a bank of cloud right over the whole of the beach area, British, Canadian, and American. And in order to get through, we had to go down to 500 feet uh, under the clouds so we could see where we were going. And we did that. The two of us, I was watching uh, my leader's tail to make sure that if the enemy came with the Luftwaffe, uh, I would be able to see him coming and we would be able to handle the situation. We got into Caen, the big city just to the south of the beach area in Juno and that sector. Looked around, didn't see anything, and came up the Orne River, a beautiful river that goes north from uh, Caen up to the beachhead area. And as we motored up, we stayed down very low, and we saw at a bridge that had been captured by the uh, paratroopers who landed in gliders. They were still fighting for to capture the bridge. It was an important bridge across the Orne. Uh, had to be captured, and it was. They were fighting over it. Then uh, Jack Taylor and I, he was leading. Uh, we went uh, to the beach area, Silver, Juno, and uh, motored up and down the beach at about 500 feet. Wow. Seeing what was there. Until at one point I looked at my petrol gauge, my fuel gauge, and it said zero. See, if you're following a leader... You're using a lot more gasoline than he is because you have to keep your position on him. I see. So what has happened was that uh, I had been using much more fuel. And when I looked at my gauges, because I was looking out of what was on the ground, it said zero. So I had a panic situation, so to speak. And I called Jack and said, we've got to get back to to uh, our base in England, and I have to cut my fuel consumption back to zero because I have my gas gauges showing zero. So we did that. And, and you made it. Got up to about <laughs> 1,500 feet. Yeah. Headed back to England and landed at an airfield called Thorny Island where I had been before D-Day for a couple of landings. I knew where it was. Got it down on the my engine shut down when I was on the runway. I had run out of fuel. It was a marginal affair, so I was able to do another 
run in the afternoon across to the the beachhead area. A very exciting day. Yeah, absolutely. General, we only have a few minutes left. I do want to ask you a similar question as I asked Jack Rind. Uh, How has being a World War II veteran shaped your life? How, How much has it meant to your life? Well, being a World War II veteran has shaped my life right from the very beginning. I wanted to fly, and I became very good at it once I got in and got into operations. I did 135 low-level missions being fired at all the time, starting on D-Day and through uh, Normandy, France, Belgium, and uh, Holland, and up into Germany. So I said a year and a half of that. But after the war, uh, I stayed on in the reserve force. I went to university, and in Windsor, Ontario, I got my Bachelor of Arts degree, and I went to the Navy for uh, three years Naval Reserve. When I got up to law school at the end of uh, my session uh, at Bachelor of Arts, I... uh, then decided that I would join 400 Squadron, which was flying vampire jets, uh, in Toronto. It was the first jet squadron that we had in Canada, and this is 1948. And I joined the squadron as a pilot officer. I lost all my rank, and they switched back to the Air Force. But I was successful, so that... By 1952, I was commander of the first two Canadian jet fighter squadrons in my capacity as a reservist. And I then stayed on in the reserve force, got my law degree, practiced law, joined the Air Reserve, uh, and kept on flying with them after I retired from that post. And uh, how many years has it I'm been now there. since how many are you, you have flown fairly recently, right? You were telling me. Yes. Well, this time I, I'm 98. I stopped flying about two years two ago. Two years ago. Right. So that's a good time to stop. <laughs> you know what? That's a pretty good run. <laughs> yeah, good run. Uh, General Richard Romer, uh, you probably uh, certainly recall uh, the special Remembrance Day show that you recorded here at Zoomer uh, Media with Vision TV. That is rerunning again tomorrow night. Uh, the, remem- the Remembrance Day episode tomorrow night, Friday, November 11th at 11 p.m. Eastern. So, it will be a great pleasure to be able to revisit that show with Libby Snymer as host. And uh, thank you so much for once again joining us here. We are big fans of yours, as you know. And I know. And I'm, I'm taking a salute at Hamilton at their big parade on the 13th. <laughs> I'm now in a position to take salutes, and I've got to do that on the 13th. There will be um, about 10 units on parade and I can still manage a salute for them. Absolutely. General Richard Romer, thank you once again for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, uh, that was a really fascinating half hour. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And, uh, you know, tomorrow on Free for All Friday, Bob Comsick will be in the chair. If you care to call in and share memories of loved ones who served, or uh, if you have stories as well, uh, if you're lucky enough to have lived as long as Richard and Jack, we would certainly like to hear from you as well. In the meantime, uh, the number one's at one coming up after Bob Comsick's news right now. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.